0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you looking for more information on using water-based finishes? Do you want to know if there's really a difference between single iron and double iron wooden planes? Are you looking to set up your first or maybe your 10th workshop space. I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 39 of the show for November 28th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Listener support helps to keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com brfinewoodworking Fine Woodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So we are making steady progress on the cabin. We got our heaters installed, and uh, the heat's not on in the house right now because uh we don't really have any reason to keep it on and, and keep running it uh, up there, but we do have the heaters installed, um, and I did get my hardwood floors delivered, so uh, they're not installed yet, but once uh, once they're ready to go in, the, the heat will get cranked up for a few days, and uh, everything can equilibrate and get happy in there, and then we'll be ready to install the floors, so we are slowly crawling towards the finish line. So a couple of listeners sent in feedback this week. First one comes from Andrew Margerson. It says, uh, this was in uh, response to um, discussions in the, on workbenches, building workbenches. In the um, in the last episode, I mentioned that I had built my original English-style workbench out of hem fur. Uh, and I think I made a comment that, you know, something along the lines of hem fur, whatever that is. So, uh, Andy's got actually some feedback on that. He says, hem fur is a species combination of hemlock and the true furs. Douglas fir uh, not actually being a fir, I, that I did know. The Douglas fir is actually part of the larch family. Um, so and he continues, as I understand it, it means that these species are marketed and interchangeably under a common name, hem fir. You may be getting Western hemlock, California red fir, noble fir, white fir, grand fir, or Pacific silver fir. So thank you for uh, that feedback, Andy, and thanks for clearing that up. So our next feedback comes from Jeremy Turner of Cardinal Custom Woodworking, uh, and his feedback is defending the use of water-based finishes. I think I, I mentioned in my last show in, uh, in response to Hugo's question uh, on finishing that I, I really didn't use water-based finishes. So Jeremy's writing in to, uh, to talk about water-based finishes. So he starts by saying, thanks for your show. Your podcast is always a highlight of my day, and I really appreciate the time and effort you put into spreading your knowledge to the masses. Well, thank you, Jeremy. I appreciate that. A little background for context. I work full-time for a general contractor who helped me set up a shop to do custom woodworking an hour from my house. As my desire to work conflicts with my growing family obligations, the only solution was setting up a hand tool space in a spare bedroom. Professionally, I do a lot of cabinetry and built-in projects for both the side hustle and the day job. I started with polyurethane, grew into pre-cat lacquer, and now use water-based finishes almost exclusively. Water-based is awesome. No solvents, little no smell. It dries well and cures fast. Water-based finishes are tintable when you need to do color adjustments and in general are very predictable. All that being said. The method for application is spraying. Whether you believe there's a place for that or not in fine furniture, the fact is you'll not have very good luck with water-based finishes applying them any other way. Spraying is fast and if you do it right, often a better looking finish. My resource suggestion is another Virginia boy, Charles Neal. Charles is the water-based king and he has so much information out there on the internet, it's painful that more people don't mention him. He also offers a hands-on class a few times a year If you're looking to give it a shot before you invest in a setup. So thank you, Jeremy, for sending in that feedback. Uh, In fact, I I do know. uh, Well, I I shouldn't say I know. I know of Charles Neal. I'm very familiar with uh, with his work and what he has published out there on the Internet. Um, And he is a fantastic resource when it comes to finishing. Um, However, that being said, you make a point in, uh, in your, your feedback that I'd like to bring attention to. And that's the whole spraying thing. Um, I know water-based finishes can be applied without spraying, but anyone, most people that you talk to are going to tell you that the best way to apply a water-based finish is to spray it. Um, and the best results that I've seen come from spraying. So, and, um, that's, for me, personally, anyway, um, it's just not something that I'm personally interested in investing in or the time or the money in right now. Um, perhaps, you know, for for Hugo, who asked the, the question, um, you know, Hugo, if that's something that you're interested in looking into with water-based finishes, definitely check out um, Charles Neal's stuff. He is He is fantastic. Um, and, you know, look into the different options in terms of sprayers. Um, for me personally, I really have no interest in spraying. Um, I You know, I know I can do it outside. I don't have a space inside that I can dedicate to spraying. Um, I don't want to do it inside my shop. Um, I don't want it, the hassle of spraying. I don't want the hassle of cleaning the gun. Um, and I, it's just not something that I'm really interested in. I, for me personally, I'm happy with the finishes uh, that I currently use, which would be uh, the occasional you know uh, occasional lacquer, which I just use a rattle can for when I use lacquer, um, but mostly wiping finishes, wiping and brushing finishes that being uh, things like milk paint um, varnishes oils etc and uh, and those are my go to finishes oh and shellac of course um, and uh, and those are really my go to finishes and uh, and since i 'm not you know selling commercial furniture to the masses, I don't worry so much about, uh, uh, about the, the need to spray and the need to get finishes dried that fast. Um, you know, maybe if I was in that business, I would think differently, but, um, you know, the, the people that I make stuff for are willing to wait for the type of finish that I typically apply. Um, so, Up to this point, it hasn't even been an interest of mine uh, to look into it. But I do appreciate the feedback because uh, I I did ask for it. Um, And uh, and since I didn't have a whole lot of information to offer to Hugo on water-based finishes, thank you for sending that in. So Hugo, um, there's uh, certainly something that you can look into is uh, Charles Neal's website and uh, his information on uh, water-based finishes. So let's move on to our listener questions. Uh, and the, the first question comes from David Sox. He says, in your YouTube video on making the base for your English workbench, when boring the waist from the leg mortises, you turn the handle 22 times to get to the correct depth. Well, what was the correct depth? And do bits with differently spaced spiral cutters require a different number of revolutions? So, David, uh, I, it's been a while since I built that bench, almost going on 10 years now, but um, I believe those mortises were about an inch and a half deep. Um, the In terms of the, the bits themselves, um, auger bits have a lead screw on them that pulls the bit into the wood. And those lead screws um, are pitched at different pitches. So what's really going to dictate how fast the bit pulls itself through is the, pitch, the thread pitch of that lead screw. It doesn't matter how much pressure you put on the bit, what matters is how fast you turn the bit. If you want to get through the wood faster, you need to turn the brace faster, because that bit is only going to pull through as fast as that lead screw is is pitched. So, for example, uh, if the thread if the um, the thread pitch on the lead screw of an auger bit is a, a sixteen threads per inch, that means you're going to have to turn that uh, that bit sixteen times in order to sink that bit one inch. So what you can do is uh, you can measure, if you have uh, tools to measure thread pitch on screws, uh, you can just measure the thread pitch on your screws and see you know what the pitch is, and that'll tell you how many revolutions you need to turn that bit in order to get to the desired depth. Um, or you can do what I do, um, and that's to make a, a test hole um, with the bit, and I, all I do is I count down You know, And then I pull the bit out and I measure the depth of the hole. And when I get down to an inch, I know how many turns that I made. um, So I know how many turns I have to make with that bit to get down to an inch. Um, And then I don't have to worry so much about depth gauges and depth stops and things like that. So uh, just measure the uh, threads per inch on your lead screw. And that will tell you uh, how fast that bit will pull itself through. This next question came from George Iconemu. He says, I'm currently making a wooden jack plane, but I've not decided on whether it will be a single iron or a double iron plane. Can you give me some advice? So, um, the first thing I'll tell you is that in terms of the performance of the plane and the finished surface left on the wood, it doesn't make one bit of difference. Um, Most woods are going to react similarly to both types of planes. It's really not going to matter one way or the other. Um, you can argue the whole tear-out thing between uh, single-iron and double-iron planes. Double-iron planes use a cap iron or chip breaker to handle the problem of tear-out and, um, and squirrely grain, um, whereas single-iron planes use uh, different pitches or you know different, different uh, bed angles to, ha- uh, to handle that same problem. So really, it's not going to make a difference. You know, if you, you have a single iron plane at 50 or 55 degrees bed angle or a uh, double iron plane at the standard 47 and a half degree bed angle um, with a with the chip breaker, um, those planes are pretty much going to perform the same on on almost every kind of wood that you're going to ever need to plane. In terms of making the plane, however, the... Double iron plane is going to be a little bit more difficult to make, Um, and that's because it's going to require a little bit more precision chisel work than a single iron plane. With a single iron plane, because there's no cap iron in the way, the front of the wedge abutment actually goes right into the front of the mouth of the plane, so you can run a, a thin saw. Up through the mouth of the plane, or down through the mouth of the plane, if you're sawing from from the uh, top of the plane, and saw both the bed line as well as the front of the wedge abutment, um, and you can saw both of those both of those out, um, and then you clear out the waste between with a chisel. With a double iron plane, if you want that plane to have a fairly tight mouth, you can't saw the front of the wedge abutment. Um, with any kind of saw, because the wedge abutment actually ends in the wear of the of the plane. So that front part of the mouth, the the part of the plane body that angles up away from the front of the mouth is called the wear. Well, the wedge, if you were to be able to extend the wedge of a double iron plane without the without it getting tight against the plane iron, the points of that wedge. Would eventually just poke right into the wear of the plane they wouldn 't go through the mouth uh, so that 's where the challenge is with making a well made double iron plane now you might say, well, I have a double iron plane you know from Sandusky or Auburn or Greenfield tool company, and uh, you know the 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 wedge comes out the mouth and and the front of the wedge abutments are sawn through the mouth um, Those were inferior planes. They were, they were, the designs were modified and altered so that they could be made by prison workers, prison inmates essentially. Um, But because of the way those planes are manufactured, those smoothing planes will never, were never able to have a tight mouth um, because the design of a double iron plane just doesn't allow for it. Um, And if you have, uh, any doubt about this or, or question or it's not making sense to you um, go to my website and look at uh, the blog article that I did on wooden plane uh, geometry wooden plane throat geometry and it has plenty of diagrams and, and pictures uh, on why this is but suffice it to say that if you want to make a good quality double iron plane the front wedge abutment actually ends part of the way up the wear of the plane so in order to have a good tight mouth you need to do a lot more chisel work Um, so if this is your first plane and you've never made a plane before i would say go with the single iron first Um, and then try to get your hands on a good quality english made double iron plane and look at the mouth on that plane to understand why you can't saw the front of the, um, front of the wedge abutment, uh, on a good quality double iron plane, uh, and why it's going to require so much more chisel work and check out my blog post on that as well. And you'll see, um, see what, what I'm and a little bit more clearly what I'm talking about. But, um, yeah, I would say that the, the single iron plane is going to be easier to make than a double iron plane, but ultimately, ultimately, it comes down to just your personal preference. Do you like the look and feel of a single iron plane more? Then make that. If you like the look and feel of a double iron plane more, then make that. Both planes are going to function just the same. The wood's not going to know the difference in the end. So just make what you know what looks and feels better to you. So our last question comes from Damian King. Damian's got a question on uh, stair saws and dado planes. Hi, Bob. Damien here from Hudson Valley, New York again. I wanted to suggest a couple of tools for discussion. The first would be something called a stair saw, and the second would be a dado plane. And my understanding is that these would sometimes be used together, so I thought maybe you could group them into a single discussion. So I leave that with you. Thank you very much for all you do, and keep up the great work. Stay sharp. So stair saw, um, first, let me, let me describe the stair saw for anyone who may not understand exactly what it is. Um, of course, if you, you do a Google search, you'll, you'll probably find, uh, pictures and, and diagrams quite easily about, you know, what a stair saw is, but essentially a stair saw is a saw. It's a handsaw with a blade that rather than, so if you can, if you picture the handle, the handle and the back are integral. They're, they're one piece, all made out of wood. And the back of the saw is probably three inches thick or three inches wide or so. And what essentially happens is there's a, a slot cut in that handle, and there are two thumb screws or two, two screws with wing nuts that run through the handle and through slots in the saw blade. And the saw blade is able to slide up and down in the handle itself. What that does is it allows the teeth to project a certain distance below the bottom of the handle. The purpose of that is to limit the depth of cut. So if you wanted to, say, make a dado, um, you could set, let's say you wanted to make that dado a quarter of an inch deep, you could set the teeth of that saw to a quarter inch below the handle of the saw, and then saw the um, outer extremities of the dado using that saw. And it would stop cutting when you hit, three quarter, uh, hit that quarter of an inch deep. Um, and it basically prevents you from going too deep um, as you're sawing. Um, now, I've never personally used a stair saw and a dado plane in conjunction with one another. Um, because the dado plane kind of scores, the, the dado plane scores the side of the dado on its own. So you really don't need to saw the shoulders first when you're using a dado plane. And I've discussed uh, dado planes in, in uh, previous episodes of the show. But um, just for quick review, the dado plane is a wooden plane of a set width. Um, you know, it could be half inch or three quarters of an inch. Let's say it's three quarters of an inch wide blade. It has a two blades in it. The front one is forked, uh, I guess you could say, or it has spurs on the outside of it, um, and it's filed in such a way that it will score the outside edges of the dado uh, as the plane is is pushed or pulled. And then the cutting iron, which is seated back behind the front iron, um, is set at a skew and it's sharpened like a you know a regular um, angle with a re- regular iron with a bevel. Um, and that iron serves to peel out the waste between the two score marks made by the first iron. So, um, with the dado plane, there's really no need that I've ever found to saw the shoulders first, unless the plane wasn't tuned up properly. Um, but if you don't have a dado plane or can't find a decent one or a one in decent shape, a stair saw is a good, um, a good good alternative, um, because you can use a stair saw to saw the shoulders of the dado. Um, and it will limit the depth of cut so that you don't have to worry too much about, you know, whether or not you're cutting too deeply. Um, and then you can use a chisel and a router plane to uh, clean up between the two saw cuts. Now you can do exactly the same thing with a regular back saw. You don't need a specialized saw to do this. Um, you know, you just have to gauge your dado depth and then uh, watch your depth as you're sawing so that you don't oversaw your lines. The one benefit that some people may say that the stair saw has, some older stair saws I've seen actually have blades that are slightly curved and they're not perfectly straight. Um, and the theory was that these saws, these saw, uh, stair saws, were made, were designed to cut the mortises. In um, housed staircase stringers, hence the name stair saw. So, because you can't use a dado plane when you're making staircase stringers with with housed um, treads and risers, you would have to saw those shoulders out um, into some type of stop. So, traditionally, you know, you would bore uh, a hole at the front where the um, where the the nosing, where the front nose of the stair tread would go, and that would be your stop. And then you could use the stair saw to sink the sides of that dado to proper depth. Um, and the the limited amount of saw projection below the handle of the saw would help to make you make sure you didn't saw too deeply, um, and therefore weaken the stringer itself. Uh, and then you could remove the waste with a uh, again with a chisel and a router plane to clean everything up and then your staircase treads and risers would fit into those uh those dados in the staircase stringer uh, again all before the age of routers so um, that is really where i think a stair saw would be most appropriate is to actually make um, housed staircase stringers um, but again it, a lot of uh, furniture makers who like to use hand tools have adopted the use of a stair saw uh, for making dados because it does allow you to make those saw cuts and it gives you a limit to how deep the saw can cut so uh, that's my thoughts on those two tools so that's all the questions that i received for this week as always if you have feedback questions or topic suggestions for the show record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on setting up a new workshop. And, you know, I'm not intending this to be a comprehensive discussion on absolutely everything you need to do or think about for every different kind of shop space, But I was recently given an opportunity that I'm considering. So um, I figured I'd let you in on my thought process for a potential new space for my own workshop. So I started, my wife and I started building this cabin that we've been working on in in 2016. Um, And we're starting to get to the point now where we can actually see the finish line. So I've been thinking about my shop space and, uh, and for a long time, uh, my plan has been to build a separate standalone shop once the cabin is done. The The downside to that is, well, first of all, I, I have to leave the house or walk out of the house to go to the separate shop. And uh, the way my property is set up, um, I, I'm not sure that I would end up putting the shop all that close to the house because of the, the hills. And I, I guess I could, there are a couple spots where I could build a A standalone shop, fairly close to the house, but um, what I'm finding is that even when I had uh, have my shed here, um, which is right outside of my existing house, um, it's not heated, it's not air conditioned, you know, and that's that kind of stinks. But uh, more importantly, there are days where I just really don't feel like, you know, walking out of the house and walking over through the dark over to my shed to to work. Um So, I end up not going to the shop because it's just too much of a hassle to go to a different building um now, mind you, like I said, my shop's not heated or cooled or anything so um you know except for the um the few months uh in the spring and and early fall where we have some nice temperate weather uh it's either freezing cold in my shop or uh or blasted hot um now, I recently moved my shop temporarily up to the basement of the cabin. Um, And that has been good for working on the cabin, but it's almost on the other side of the property from where we are now. So it's made going to the shop, you know, after dinner or whatever, uh, even more of kind of a pain. And, and uh, you know, I've got to walk across the the property in the dark, uh, especially this time of year, um, you know, where the sun goes down and it's dark by five o'clock. Um, there's no lights, you know, we're, we're up in the mountains. We're in a real rural area. So, um, it's just not all that convenient of a space. And now it's kind of cold. It's been in the teens the last few nights. And, uh, I just really haven't wanted to, to walk up there to do anything. Um, and you know, my wife's noticed this and, um, and she actually suggested that I put the shop in the garage in the new space rather than parking the cars in the garage, uh, which should make my uh my friend Yami uh pretty happy because uh, as he always says you know uh cars uh garages are not for cars so uh you know she's suggesting that I put the shop in the garage uh, against my judgment I originally did not want to do that I was planning to park the cars in the garage and build a standalone shop um, and not only is she suggesting that I put my shop in the garage, but she's suggesting that I use both bays of the two car garage for my shop, uh, which would give me a space that is roughly uh, twenty four feet by twenty eight feet or about five hundred and eighty square feet when you take away the um, the closet and the uh, and the stairwell up to the first floor that's in that garage. so it would end up being a bigger space than uh than I've ever had. Um, which is kind of, you know, something to be a little bit excited about. But I'm also a little hesitant because it's in the basement um, and it's not exactly what I had planned or pictured for my shop. So that brings me to point number one when setting up a new shop is to uh, consider lighting. Now, in my ideal shop, I was going to have lots of windows, lots of natural light to the point where I would be able to work any you know during the day anytime the sun was up essentially without the lights on without any artificial lighting and that was really going to be my ideal space and that was is really what was driving me to building a standalone shop so that's point number one that that you have to think about is what is the lighting like in the space that you're planning to move into um if i decide to go the route of putting my shop in this garage i will have very little natural light the garage doors do have windows but they aren't going to they're they're on like the let's see they're on the east side of the house so they're not really going to see much light and and the windows are small so they don't let a whole lot of light in there Uh, certainly not enough to do any type of fine detail woodworking so I would need to put artificial lights on pretty much any time I'm up in the shop. Maybe I could work in there uh, during the day, during nice weather, when I could open the garage doors completely and get lots of light in there. Um, but obviously, you know, if, it's, if the weather's bad and I have to keep the doors closed in order to keep it heated, um, I'm not going to have too much natural light in there. So uh, even during the day, I'm going to need artificial lights, which means lots of artificial lights. But at the same time, I'm considering that most of my woodworking is likely going to be done after hours. I have a day job um, that I work, you know, from until five o'clock. So um, I'm not really going to get a whole lot of woodworking done until the evening hours anyway. Um, and even so, even in the summer, I'm, if I had a shop with lots of natural light, I'm not really going to get to take advantage of that natural light unless I'm working in there on, during the day on weekends. Uh, so lighting is, is the first important thing to think about. You want to make sure everything is lit adequately. Um, and you know if, if it's not, how much extra light are you going to need to put in that space in order to adequately light it for the type of work that you plan to do? My second point, moisture control. One of the reasons that I really wanted to do a standalone shop is because it would be above grade. Um, And I would be able to easily control humidity levels in that building. Um, We, you know, we do get some humid weather here, but we can pretty much go without the air conditioner year round. We don't, even in the the hottest days of summer, um, you know, we don't really get above the mid 80s. So, you know, maybe on a really hot day, we might get into, you know, get to ninety. But uh, for the most part, our average temperature here in the mountains stays, you know, mid-80s or lower. Um, And it does get humid some days. But for the most part, we can keep the windows open um, and not have to use any type of air conditioning. And at night, even when we have those really warm 85-degree days, it's usually down in the 50s or 60s at night. So it cools down just fine uh, after the sun goes down. Now, working in this basement... I have to consider how I'm going to manage moisture. We're going to be using a heat pump water heater. Um, so that's going to help somewhat during the warmer months of the year because it, it's going to act as a dehumidifier essentially um, or reverse air conditioner. Um, you know, it's going to cool cool the basement down a little bit, it's going to pull the moisture out of the air. Um, and that's going to help with moisture in that basement area somewhat during the summer, but uh, I am concerned when that temperature gets too cold for that heat pump water heater to function just off the heat pump and the electric elements have to kick on um, you know then it's not going to be dehumidifying that space and I do find i I did find when I moved my uh, shop out of the shed and into the basement space, the temporary basement space that I'm in now, uh, the doors on my wooden shop cabinets swelled up to the point where I couldn't get them open, or when I got them open, they wouldn't close again. Um, so there is quite a bit more moisture and humidity in that basement area that we are going to have to uh, account for and control in order to keep tools from rusting um, and you know just to, to keep that space not so humid down there so if i decide again to use that space for my shop uh, moisture control is something that i'm going to have to consider as well and it's something you should think about you know when you're looking to set up your new shop uh, how are you what's the moisture like the moisture or humidity level like in that space and if necessary how are you going to be able to control that humidity now the next thing i'm thinking about is the floor wooden floors are 100% the way to go. And I don't just mean wood, you know, the wood, the floor covering itself being wood. Um, that's not so important. What is important is that subfloor. What is your subfloor made out of? Um, my plan with the standalone shop was going to be to, um, frame it on a, a pillar type foundation, uh, or Potentially a, a block wall foundation, depending on where on the on the property I put it and what the grade was like. But then I would have a crawl space underneath, so I would essentially be standing on a on a two by ten wooden subfloor, regardless of what I ended up covering the floor with. And that's a extreme. That's the the best case scenario is to be standing on a, a wooden floor. With this basement and, or slash garage shop. I'm looking at a concrete slab. This is the worst case scenario for a shop floor. Um, concrete is terribly hard on your joints, your feet, your ankles, your knees, your back. Um, if I work standing too long on a concrete floor, um, my back will be killing me for days. So you have to come up with solutions uh, for the floor. So how, how do you address that? Uh, in my case, Um, I have a cement slab. Well, you know, one of the options is to put sleepers down wooden sleepers and put a, you know, as a subfloor, and then put plywood over that and then a finished floor on top of that. But that's not something really that I want to, I want to get into doing. Um, it's kind of too, for me, it's too permanent of an installation. Of course, it could be ripped out if we ever sold the house or um, decided, you know, to build that standalone shop some point in the future. Um, and then wanted to park the cars in the garage, it could be ripped out, but it'd be an awful lot of work. And it's really something that I I don't want to, uh, to get into. Um, so it's going to stay a concrete floor if I, if I go that route. Um, so, you know, I need to look into other alternatives and that would be things like, uh, rubberized flooring, like you might find in a, in a gym floor, um, or those locked together rubber tiles, or, um, or you know, just lots of anti-fatigue mats or horse stall mats um, spread out over the floor in in my work areas, um, so that I am not standing directly on that concrete floor. But uh, again, you know, it's a, an important point to consider when you're looking at a space to set up a shop in: is uh, what type of floor does it have, and uh, how are you going to manage standing on that floor for long periods of time? So the next thing that I need to think about is power. And even though I primarily use hand tools, um, I do need to consider setting up some space for some machines and power tools. So about eight months ago, I did actually start to add some machines back into my shop. Um, I did buy a contractor saw, contractor table saw from uh, from the home center um, nothing fancy, you know. I'm not planning to uh, to buy a saw stop or or anything crazy like that. It's just a simple, basic contractor saw from the home center. Um, I also bought a um, a planer, a, a DeWalt um, bench top planer, um, and a dust collector for those two tools. Um, reason being, I need to make an entire kitchen full of cabinets uh, because the cabinets that my wife and I priced out. We're going to be way, way out of our budget because we wanted inset doors and drawers, and apparently, uh, even though the boxes are exactly the same, if you want inset doors and drawers in your cabinets, you can pretty much double the price of those cabinets. So um, we both looked at the, the at each other and looked at the salesman when uh, when we got quoted the price for the cabinets uh, and pretty much walked out of there. And, uh, and she said to me, you can make those, can't you? So I, uh, I'm going to be making a kitchen full of cabinets. Um, but in order to do that, I got the table saw and the planer, uh, because I don't enjoy working with plywood by hand. Um, and, uh, we just figured it as part of the, uh, expense of the kitchen to, uh, to get the, um, the table saw and the planer. Um, but i'm probably I'll probably hold on to them even after I'm done with the kitchen cabinets, because um you know it's not a saw that's going to have a really great resale value anyway, so um it's probably not even going to be worth it for me to to bother selling it, so I'll probably hold on to it, tuck it in a, away in a corner somewhere um in case you know I end up with a project down the line where I've got to cut a bunch of plywood again, so I need to think a little bit about power um, in my shop even though i probably won't be using it all that much um, there could be a situation where i will need to run say a dust collector and a table saw at the same time and uh, ideally you don't want to have those two tools on the same circuit because if you turn two tools that are drawing close to the amperage of that circuit on at the same time chances are you're going to trip the circuit breaker. So I need to have at least two um, two circuits in my shop, you know, in addition to the lighting circuit, uh, I'm going to need to have at least two power circuits in the shop for those those tools. Um, so that's something that you're going to want to think about as well. If you're looking at a space, does it have the necessary power that you might need? How many circuits are run in that space? Um... Would it be easy to run more, or do you need to break walls apart? Um, do you have easy access to the breaker panel? Uh, in my case, I have access to the breaker panel. I wired the whole house myself, um, and the garage. Um, the garage ceiling still isn't sheetrocked yet, so um, I have easy access to my panel, and I have easy access to um, the wiring chases where i could easily run power to that space if i need to in fact i'm considering if i if i decide to go with the garage even putting uh one or two 220 amp 220 volt or 240 volt um, circuits in that space just in case i get maybe a bandsaw down the line um and and want to plug that in or um I doubt I'll upgrade the table saw. I really don't see uh, see me using a table saw much to begin with, but uh maybe at some point if I do get a bandsaw, maybe I might want to upgrade the dust collector you know to a two forty uh dust collector instead of the one twenty that I have now, and then I would need two two forty circuits so uh these are all things that to think about now before I close up any walls in the space um so and there there are questions you should ask yourself as well if you're considering a space. Um, What tools do you have? What tools might you see yourself getting in the future? Um, And what type of power will those tools require? And does that space have the necessary power? And if it doesn't, is it possible to bring in the power that you need um, to that space? So something to think about as well. Another thing to consider that may not be so obvious at first thought are uh, restroom facilities. So, if you're going to be in a space away from uh, away from your house in a standalone building, um, or you know someplace not not near your property, um, what are the possibilities for restroom facilities? Um, it's something that I considered, or have been considering, um, when I'm, I'm designing or, or planning for my standalone shop. Uh, if I go the standalone shop route. Um, it 's going uh, i 'm going to want it to be fairly close to the main house so that the you know the water is close by and uh the you know the bathrooms are close by i don 't want to have to uh you know walk uh, across uh, eleven acres of, of property um, you know just to use the bathroom in case of an emergency so um, one of the things that I considered with my standalone shop is putting it down where the uh, existing house is right now that we plan to tear down so that I could use the existing septic system down there because we don't tie into any type of uh, city water or sewer. We've got well and, and septic. So if I was going to build a standalone shop in order to put uh, uh, bathroom facilities in that shop, I would need to either tie into the septic system up at the cabin where we're building now, or I'd have to install a whole new septic system, um, or you know plan to to walk completely across the property if the uh, if the uh, shop was not built close to the house. Um, so the alternative for me is to build the shop down where the existing house is now, which again is about halfway across the property. Um, and tie into the existing septic system down here so that i wouldn't have to walk up halfway across the property to get to the cabin um, to use the facilities there but again that you know gets into another situation of of bringing power new power into that building um, and hooking into the existing septic system so something else to think about using the uh, the basement of the cabin Uh, I can just walk up the stairs and I've got all the water and uh, restroom facilities that I need. So something that may not seem obvious at first, but uh, certainly something that should be considered. Finally, something else to think about is anyone else who might want to visit that space or use that space. So one of the things that I noticed when we moved here and I moved my shop out into the shed outside of the house Um, one of the things I noticed different was that I didn't get as many visitors to my shop as I did when we were in New Jersey. And you can think that, you know, that maybe that's a good thing for you. Maybe that's a bad thing for you. But, um, when I had my shop attached to the house in New Jersey, my wife or my kids would drop in just about any time. When I moved my shop into the separate building outside of our existing house here in Virginia, um, it seemed like my wife and my kids wouldn't visit me so often in the shop um which you know to me is a downside you know i I really enjoy having my kids come into the shop and and working with me or just coming in to hang out or see what's going on um you know it's nice it was nice when my wife could come into the shop and um you know she would just hang out for a little bit, you know and that's part of That was a part of having my shop inside the house that I really enjoyed and I really missed when we came here. Um, And it's one of the things that I would gain back were I to put the shop in the garage uh, in the cabin Uh, because it's just a trip down the stairs for for my wife or my kids to come down into the shop uh, to spend some time down there. So, um, you know, that's something to think about as well, whether you prefer to have people visiting your shop or not visiting your shop. Um, and, and that's something, you know, to consider as well, where you're going to locate that shop because, uh, you know, maybe you don't want people coming to to visit. Maybe that's your, uh, your getaway space. So, um, for me, um, it would actually be beneficial for me. I, I think I would enjoy having it closer to the house or, or inside located inside the house again, where my kids could come down, um, or my wife could come down and, and spend some time down there with me, uh, whenever they wanted, and, and while they can do, they can certainly do so now. Uh, I find that they tend to do so much less frequently than they did when the shop was inside the house. Now that my shop is separated from the house where everybody else is, so those are just some of my some of the things I'm thinking through uh, as I'm pondering whether or not to. Uh, use the, the garage, the two-car garage space in our new cabin for my future shop or to go with my original plan uh, and build a standalone shop. And I, I still haven't made the final decision yet. Um, we'll, uh, I just have to think about things a little bit more first and, uh, and come to a decision. But uh, I do hope that some of the things that I've brought up here might help you to uh, Um, consider some things if you're, if you're thinking about a new space or if you're designing a a shop space for yourself or looking for a shop space for yourself, um, maybe some of these things might help you along with your decision-making process as well. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT039. In the show notes, you can find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thanks again for listening, everyone, and until next time, stay sharp.